Many years ago, some twenty-some years ago, when I first started doing Buddhist practice, somewhere I heard the phrase, the secret teachings. And that really got my attention. I don't recall who said it or whether they promised them or anything like that, but I thought, wow, this is something to look forward to, the secret teachings. And so time went by and I kept imagining that perhaps they would announce them one day or that perhaps it didn't work that way, but that um, one time in an interview I would suddenly be told that I had finally qualified for the secret teachings and I would be given them. It was a real wonderful carrot to have this idea of the secret teachings. But nobody ever said anything. No announcements were ever made. And I began to understand something. And I think I actually understood it all by myself. Which is that the secret teachings are self-secret. There are teachings and they are continually present but we keep them secret from ourselves. Isn't that a wonder? (laughs) A more contemporary expression of this would be to say that somehow we are in denial about the truth of our existence. Somehow we just don't get it. We just don't see it. We keep it secret from ourselves. After the Buddha had his awakening, he was reluctant to teach, it is said. He was just hanging out underneath the Bodhi tree, having a marvelous meditation, hanging out in his awakened bliss. And he thought that it wouldn't be possible to teach what he had learned, that it was somehow incommunicable. The story goes that a god came down and whispered in the Buddha's ear and said to the Buddha, they they said, some there are who are clear-sighted and do not need your teachings. And some there are whose eyes are very clouded with dust, who cannot hear your teachings. But between these two, there are some with but little dust in their eyes who can be helped to see. And for the sake of these, please set forth and teach. And so, for our sake, for those here with little dust, the Buddha taught. We could call this dust blindness or ignorance, part of our human condition, a kind of clouding of our ability to perceive the truth. Because as I said, the truth is always revealing itself, right here, right now. We have everything we need to realize the truth. The truth is actually here with us every moment. 
the basis of our mindfulness practice is to reveal this truth to us. Not as a nice idea or an interesting philosophy, but as a direct experience in the present moment. For each of us to know very intimately the truth of the Buddhist teaching. What are the secret truths or the secret teachings? Well, here they are. That there is ceaseless change. That there is suffering and its end. That the personal self is a fiction, a story we tell ourselves. And that we are Buddha. Our essential nature is no different from the Buddha's Buddha nature, we could say. Now, for many of us, this is inspiring, this is intriguing, this is a nice idea. But is it a living reality? To realize is to make real. Have we made these truths real for ourselves? When Sogni Rinpoche was here, a, a lama in the Tibetan tradition, <clears throat> he gave an example that I like a lot. He said, we're like sailors out in the middle of the ocean in a really well-equipped ship searching for water. Isn't that a wonder? The water is what we don't see the very ground of our being. And yet it doesn't exist for us as a living, known, felt reality. This ground of being is our birthright. Ergentalku said, self-existing wakefulness has existed in the mind stream of sentient beings from beginningless time. It is part of our human functioning and our task is to realize it. So how do these truths eventually get seen? How do we wake up? How does consciousness evolve on this planet? There are many descriptions of how this occurs and many methods for the attainment of this understanding. Tonight I'd like to use a description that is based on a universal process that many different cultures and many different peoples have described. The process of initiation. And in any initiation process, there are four essential elements to complete. How this occurs in the context of mindfulness practice is what I want to talk about. And actually, this talk is going to be given in uh, uh, two separate um, evenings. I'll give the first 
part of it tonight, and then uh, on Saturday night you'll hear the end. One of the things I've realized about teaching, I used to be really nervous about giving Dharma talks because I felt like I had just not enough to say. You know, I just didn't know enough. I just didn't have anything to share. And now I realize it's kind of the opposite. I just feel like I have so much to say that I get stressed out trying to fit it all in. So my compromise was to say, okay, I'm going to cut this talk in half and save you and myself an enormous amount of suffering by trying to tell you everything I know about this subject. So what is an initiation? The dictionary definition is being initiated into an experience by a ritual a ceremony, or an ordeal. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) What we are doing here is agreeing to live by a certain ritual, we could say. Sitting and walking, silence, slowing down, all of this allows for a deep and continuous exposure to the truth of our experience. And yes, it can sometimes feel like an ordeal. To be constantly with yourself all day in silence. The four universal stages or elements of initiation are one, Meeting an intensity of suffering for for which there is no obvious solution. (laughs) We can't make it go away. Two, being alone. Three, symbolic death. The illusion of me and mine is seen through. And four, the courage to care. The courage to be in the world with compassion and wisdom. These are the four elements of any initiation. All of them must be complete for the initiation to be complete. So often what begins a process of initiation is some kind of suffering. The kinds of suffering that we bump into as we're living our lives, a sudden loss, a death, a crippling accident, an illness, a trauma, one of life's unexpected and often unwanted turns over which we have little control. Initiation occurs in the midst of a deeply personal experience. It is where the deeply personal meets an impersonal or archetypal experience of life. An example would be the death of a loved one. It's deeply personal and paradoxically deeply impersonal at the same time. This kind of confrontation can happen in the form of a sudden crisis, or it can be more of an existential crisis, as happened with the young Buddha-to-be, who was living contentedly and happily as a prince in his father's kingdom, in his own palace, 
where he lived a life of great luxury and protection and security until he met what are called the four heavenly messengers. For the first time in his protected young life, he saw a person who was ill, sick. For the first time in his life, he saw an old person, a really aged person. For the first time in his life, he saw a corpse. And fourthly, he saw a holy person, a person who seemed untouched or at peace with old age, sickness, and death. And this awakened in him a tremendous questioning and a tremendous desire to go deeper into his own experience to find out what was the meaning of this? How could this be? The truth of impermanence was revealed to him. And I find what's so inspiring about the story and what made all the difference is that the sight, the, the, the knowledge of the four heavenly messengers provoked him to go forth, provoked him to open to this information and to let it penetrate him to the core. He went towards it rather than run away. He didn't go back. He could have. He could have gone back to the palace and, you know, pulled the covers over his head and said, well, I'm not going to go out there again. But he didn't. Instead, he left his protected, cozy life and went forth to find a deeper meaning. He was curious about it. He wanted to know, he wanted to experience fully what this life was about. In your own lives, how have or how are the four heavenly messengers appearing? They are your secret teachings, sometimes appearing through acts of fate, sometimes as gentle openings to the truth of impermanence, sometimes as a deep questioning of the meaning and direction of your life. When I look back over my life, and there's more of it to look back on than there ever has been before, I can see that my initiation began, really began, with my father's death when I was 16 years old. He was away from home and he died of a heart attack. And it was I, you know, as a 16-year-old, I was completely unprepared. I didn't know anybody whose father had died. I didn't know anybody who had died. It was quite a shock. But what I remember most vividly, what made its deep impression on me at the time, was this, that it was in March. It was actually, you know, this month. And it was back east. 
We lived outside of New York. Uh, And what I remember was that he died and the forsythia was blooming. And I just, that made such an impression on me. I couldn't put the two together, that somehow the, the flowers could keep blooming even though my father had died. It was something in my mind that just couldn't comprehend that. But it made quite an Im- impression The kind of knowledge that I gained from this experience also brought with it a kind of aloneness. It separated me from my friends, most of whom had not experienced death. I felt the burden of that in a kind of aloneness and separation from others my age. Many years later I read something Suzuki Roshi said, Renunciation does not consist in giving up the things of this world, but in accepting that they go away. My father's death was my first experience of this kind of renunciation, which life inevitably brings to all of us. So now I want to talk a little bit about the second uh, phase of initiation, that of being alone, And later I will return to talk a little bit more about the uh, challenge of meeting suffering. In the last retreat, part of which I sat, I remember that some of you will know the joke and some of you won't, so I want to share the joke with everyone, but do you remember Sylvia Borstein's... um, uh, sharing a cartoon one night of the uh, seeker going up the mountain to find the holy man. And there is a holy man on top of the mountain sitting in his cave. And the caption of the cartoon is the man in the cave saying, if I knew the meaning of life, would I be sitting all alone in my underwear in the cave? That was, you know, a kind of uh, comment, you could say, about our situation. We're not sitting in our underwear, we're not in our cave, but here we are, contemplating, reflecting, going into a kind of aloneness. We live in a world which is very relational. In fact, it's a very major focus of our lives, our relationships as lay people. We don't live as monastics. We don't live as monks and nuns. But through our relationships, we know ourselves. We enjoy ourselves. We express our love and caring for the world through our families and friends. So sometimes we come to be alone uh, through a kind of uh, rejection or abandonment. We are left. And that, particularly in this world, is a very 
a difficult kind of loneliness to bear. It's a forced aloneness, and it often breeds with it feelings of unworthiness or not being lovable, feelings of shame or self-doubt or lack of trust. It seems that something is wrong with us to be left. Other times our aloneness is chosen. We feel a pull, we feel a call to a new way of life. We sense more potential than perhaps our situation is allowing. And so we feel called to set off on some kind of journey which requires us to be alone. So you all have come here and chosen to be alone. And on retreat, we have kind of the best of both worlds because it is true we are alone here, but you all are also in an incredibly supportive environment. Being fed the, not only the delicious food, but the teachings of the Buddha, the teachings of the Dharma, the support of each other, the schedule, the sense of community and bonding that develops even in the silence all serves a kind of very supportive atmosphere. Even so, it can be very difficult to bear this kind of aloneness. We are separated suddenly when we come on retreat from all that is familiar and comforting. We are separated from what we have depended on in our everyday lives to make ourselves feel good. Being on retreat, especially the first week, is a kind of rough detox. All of our addictions get revealed, but not indulged. If we can stay with it, we begin to sense the potential. And it is true that there is a potential in being alone that we cannot sense perhaps in the midst of our relational lives. That no matter how much love and support and help we get from others, that somehow existentially we are still alone, that we still have our own unique karmic knots to untie, to release, that we each have the riddle of our own particular existence to solve. Husbands and wives, parents and children, sisters and brothers, no matter how close, each has has her or his unique karmic condition to untangle. So on retreat, this is part of the opportunity that we sense our own unique tangle and have an opportunity to begin to tease it apart. We are thrown back on our inner resources, or perhaps we discover that we have inner resources for the first time. 
until we are on retreat, we may not know that we have within us tremendous potential and resources for healing, for love, for compassion, for courage, for patience, for equanimity, for freedom, for awakening. All of these resources are within us, perhaps dormant, only awaiting our attention to begin to show themselves. It's paradoxical that we can feel at times very lonely in the midst of family life, for example, or in the midst of a party. And in the aloneness of a retreat, we can feel deeply, deeply connected to life. So being alone in this way is not necessar- does not necessarily translate into loneliness, although it can at times seem very lonely. But at other times, this very aloneness allows for a deeper sensing of our connection with life. I was surprised when I first <laughs> came to practice, having lived a very extroverted life. I tend to be a sort of extroverted, people-oriented person. And I was very surprised to discover how much I actually enjoyed the solitude and the silence. The Buddha spoke many times of the delight, happiness, and pleasure born of seclusion. And he spoke about two kinds of seclusion, outer seclusion and inner seclusion. The outer seclusion is the seclusion that we are here on the land protected by a gate. You know, that gate down below that keeps all the curious people out the Monday nighters and the hikers and the bikers. And if we didn't have that gate, we wouldn't have the outer seclusion that's necessary for this kind of retreat. And then there is the inner seclusion, which is called a mind supremely concentrated in the present, where the past is no longer so predominant The future is not grabbing our attention. The outer seclusion of retreat makes possible the cultivation of concentration and mindfulness. And this leads to an awareness of the possibility of this inner seclusion, a mind supremely concentrated in the present. Layman Pang wrote, the past is already past. Don't try to regain it. The present does not stay. Don't try to hold it from moment to moment. The future is not come. Don't think about it beforehand. With the three times non-existent, 
mind is the same as Buddha mind. With the three times non-existent, That is the inner seclusion. It is really rare in this life to have this kind of uninterrupted alone time, to be able to give all of your attention to the usually overlooked details of your mind and body experience. Sometimes this is a pleasure, sometimes this is challenging. There's a saying in Zen, if something is boring for two minutes, try it for four. If still boring, try it for eight, or 16, or 32, and so on. (laughs) This is the encouragement, you know, when we say, to be present, to keep looking. Another story which illustrates the potential which exists in having so much uninterrupted time to yourself is a story that perhaps some of you have heard before, but it's such a good one that I would like to share it again. It's a story told about Louis Agassiz, a biologist who taught students uh, the importance of paying attention. When a student would come to him for instruction, he would ask the student when they would like to begin their lesson, and if the answer was now, the student was immediately presented with a dead fish, usually a very long, dead, pickled, evil-spelling specimen, personally selected by the master. The fish would be placed before the student in a tin pan. He was to look at the fish, the student was told, whereupon Agassiz would leave not to return until later in the day, if at all. Samuel Scudder, one of the students, described the experience as one of the most memorable turning points of his life. In ten minutes I had seen all that could be seen in that fish, Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around and looked at, looked at it in the face, ghastly. From behind, from beneath, from above, just as ghastly. I was in despair. I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were prohibited. I had my two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. (laughs) I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. (laughs) I was mortified, still more of the wretched fish. 
But now I set, my, set myself to my task with a will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly, and toward its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied, I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. The day following, Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish, he announced to Agassi, had symmet has symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassi said, obviously pleased. Scudder asked what he might do next, and Agassi replied, Look at your fish. In Scudder's case, the lesson lasted a full three days. He got off easily. You know, you're here for a month at least. Look, look, look was the repeated injunction and the best lesson he ever had, Scudder recalled. A legacy of inestimable value, which he could not buy, with which he could not be parted. So at least we don't have dead fish here in the hall. <laughs> but we do have a lot of time to attend to that unfolding moment-to-moment -moment experience. So I'd like to go back and pick up where we left off with the Buddha and the four heavenly messengers. When the Buddha left the palace, he opened and allowed the first stage of this initiation process, opening to suffering and going towards it rather than running away, meeting it, being curious about it. So we often talk on retreat about our relationship to suffering, how it is that we avoid it, how it is that we meet it, how it is that we can find peace with it, how it is that we can not struggle with it. Atantra talked about two kinds of suffering. He said there's the suffering which leads to more suffering, which is the kind of judging it, blaming ourselves for it, blaming others for it, resisting it, fighting it. Or there is the kind of suffering which leads to the end of suffering, when we are willing to feel it, to be with it, to know it, to allow it, to be curious about it, to meet it with an open heart. I have a brother-in-law who has had Parkinson's for the last four or five years. He is a good-hearted person and worked very hard all of his life providing for his family. He was actually a bit of a workaholic. And now I see that all he knows how to do in relationship to this uncontrollable disease is to try to fight it. So every day for him, that's his approach, is to fight it, to overcome it, to defeat it. And it's very painful to watch. It 
it's very painful to watch somebody who doesn't have any other means of being with a difficult situation. A wise woman was asked, what is the way to respond to suffering and discontent in our lives? She answered, there are those who will meet pain and discontent as they would an enemy. Some will rage at the world. They will find someone to blame, thinking only in terms of fault. There are those who will bewail their fate, saying, What have I done to deserve this? Why does sorrow always happen to me? There are those who will blame themselves, saying, I am such a worthless person. I must deserve to suffer. There are also those who will meet pain and discontent not as an enemy, but as a teacher. In the face of suffering, they will follow the path of the wise, asking, what lies at the root of this discontent and what is the means to its end? What the teachings suggest is that the means to its end begins with making friends with ourselves, with learning to respond to our difficulties with compassion, with patience, with kindness. And that paradoxically, when we can do this, in little moments, little by little, by opening ourselves, we actually free ourselves. Can we befriend that which is most difficult? Can we learn to relate with compassion and understanding? It doesn't take long on retreat to see the truth of how we avoid our suffering. How long do you sit before the first impulse to move away from something unpleasant arises? How long before you notice yourself absorbed in a pleasurable fantasy? How often during the day can we be aware of our pursuit of the pleasant and our avoidance of the unpleasant? In saying this, I don't want to give the impression that there is something wrong or bad about feeling pleasure. That's not the point at all. But too often we don't see the pattern of avoidance we are hooked on. And so we don't go deeper. We may be comforted by our pleasant routines, but it does not necessarily open our heart or help us to see more clearly. We could say that the addiction to the pleasant and the avoidance of the unpleasant keeps us in a comfort zone. It would be like the Buddha staying in his palace and not venturing forth. On the other hand, if your attitude towards yourself is very harsh or punitive or you have this strong internal judge, perhaps for you, 
And that might be many of us in this room. It might be very skillful and actually helpful to open more to the pleasant, to allow yourself to feel the moments of pleasure that are always here with us. There was a woman on retreat once who had been uh, through a, a very difficult family crisis and she was healing from a lot of grief and woundedness. And what became clear was that what she most needed was to use her sense doors to help her reconnect with life. She had gotten so contracted and so shut down with this unbearable process of grief that actually instructing her to allow herself to enjoy sound and sight and taste and touch was the beginning of her healing. Allowing the sense doors to open in that way can be tremendously healing. Also, if we are opening, we think opening to suffering, okay, I'm going to do it, sort of like what Eugene was talking about last night, we need to be cautious about not overwhelming ourselves. I think of a early retreat that I did. I think it was actually my very, very first Buddhist retreat, which was a a Zen Sashin in the Rinzai Zen tradition. I really had no idea what I was signing up for, so I found myself in the Mount Baldy Zendo with um, Sasaki Roshi, who was one of the fiercest of the fierce, doing a Sashin where it was just way way more (laughs) than I could handle. But I was so determined not to be defeated by this, you know, experiment that I I survived, which was in itself quite a feat because I had what I call my Zen nervous breakdown in the middle of it where I just started wailing in the Zendo and I couldn't stop and they had to carry me out, you know. Now, there was nothing that I learned about the Buddhist teaching from that experience. All I learned was that I could survive, you know, sitting like this for seven days. <laughs> even though at the end, I don't think I could even stretch open my arms. They were so tight and tense. But I, I, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> What we find over time, of course, is that the way we relate to our own suffering is indeed how we will relate to the world's suffering. If we live in fear of our suffering, if we hate our suffering, if we are blame ourselves for our suffering, we will do the same when we are with someone else who is suffering. If we feel overwhelmed by our suffering and go into self-pity, we will feel overwhelmed by others' suffering, and so on and so on. So this um, relationship to suffering is actually an enormous gift that we are cultivating for the benefit of our world. And it is the work of a lifetime does not happen overnight. 
we build the capacity to handle our suffering. And in doing so, we discover, little by little, qualities of patience, of acceptance, of compassion, of courage, of tolerance. There's a teacher named Gavin Harrison, who years ago was diagnosed with AIDS, and he, he wrote about this. He said, Part of what was driving me when I came to the meditation practice was an intuitive belief that there is a way to be at peace with the reality of the world, with all of its suffering, its angst and beauty and wonder. And I feel that to some extent I've tasted that, the feeling of peace where there never was peace, love where there was so much fear, feeling a part of the web rather than feeling alienated and isolated. These feelings are not conditional upon the absence of suffering. What a discovery. What a discovery. So opening to suffering with acceptance and compassion is a major part of this initiation into the secret teachings. When we resist or get entangled in our suffering, we get stuck. This phase of learning to accept all that is given to us actually ripens us for the next phase of the initiation, which is the phase of seeing through the empty and illusory nature of me and mine. In other traditions, called sometimes called the death of the ego. How does this acceptance lead us to letting go on a deeper level? Nisargadatta tells us, He says, the essence of pleasure is acceptance. Whatever may be the situation, if it is acceptable, it is pleasant. If it is not acceptable, it is painful. You will find an acceptance of pain, a joy which pleasure cannot yield, for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The ending of the self, with its desires and fears, enables you to return to your real nature, the source of all happiness and peace. So we will continue this exploration on Saturday night, but I'd like to leave you with a few questions for you to perhaps take into your practice. What is your relationship to pleasure and pain? Where do you get hooked? Where do you resist? Where could you open a bit more with compassion Where could you let go of your resistance, even a little tiny bit? In one moment, this can happen. 
And I'd like to uh, close with a a short uh, reading from a Zen teacher, Adyashanti. He says, The impossibility of avoiding anything is liberation itself. When you no longer avoid anything, there is no suffering because there is no resistance. Only then do you see that everything is of a single essence. It is God pretending to be enlightened and it is God pretending to be bound. It loses nothing by manifesting as a confused thought, nor does it gain anything by being an amazing spiritual experience. No more than clay gains anything or loses anything by manifesting as a plate or a cup. It hasn't gained or lost anything. It is still the single essence. Seeing that, is freedom. So let's sit together for a very brief moment. The impossibility of avoiding anything is liberation itself. When you no longer avoid anything, there is no suffering because there is no resistance. Only then do you see that everything is of a single essence. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society in 1997. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed 